Hey, guess what? (laughs) It's the Dead Lady Show podcast. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women both overlooked and iconic who achieved amazing things against the odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. Then we bring you a special selection of these stories here on the podcast. I'm Susan Stone, and I'm joined once again by GLS co-founder Katie Darbyshire. Hello, Katie. Hello, Susan. This episode is one of those beyonds. Mm. The featured Dead Lady presentation comes via our friends at Dead Lady Show NYC, which is organized and hosted by Molly O'Loughlin Kemper with Sheila Enright. The lady in question was a queer feminist Hungarian Indian artist, writer and art critic who left a profound impact on art despite her untimely death. Amrita um, Sher Gill was an incredibly charismatic nonconformist. Uh-huh. Yes. And her, her work really reframed discussions on art and feminism, Orientalism and colonialism, while merging European technique and classical Indian aesthetics into something new. If you'd like to see some of her works while you listen to the episode, you can find them over on our website at deadladyshow.com slash podcast. And they are gorgeous, so go take a look. Today's presenter is Nafisa Ferdos, a feminist program manager and illustrator from the fittingly named borough of Queens. <laughs> Here she is, recorded live at New York's KGB Bar Red Room. All right, so I am presenting a dead lady that I have a huge crush on. Uh, <laughs> she is an official national treasure in India and part of the avant-garde at the time. She's a modernist painter. This is Amrita Shergill. Born in 1913 in Budapest, Hungary, Amrita Shergill was an Indian-Hungarian queer proto-feminist painter, also an obsessive letter writer, which is lucky for us because we have a lot of her diary entries and correspondences in her own words. Although unlucky for us, her mother decided to burn the ones detailing her romantic affairs with men and women after her death. Boo! (laughs) Yeah, it's a little devastating, but not unexpected, as was the fate of many queer histories, right? So the female body, colonization, desire and vulnerability, melancholic women with sad eyes... These were some of the themes and tropes in Amrita's paintings. Um, Her body of work also includes an extensive collection of self-portraits where we can see her evolution over time. Amrita is known for blending European and Indian aesthetics as well as changing the game and shifting the paradigm by introducing female subjectivity in Indian art at a time where it was not common. This feminist inclination towards auto-theory and memoir, where you make sense of history and power and interpret it through the self, all of it feels very contemporary. So I think she was cool then, and she remains cool now. So here is a photo of her topless at a beach. (laughs) I discovered Amrita in college because, like many of us, especially diasporic people of color, I was hungry for historical examples of queerness and sexual liberation in an Asian context. And I'm happy to report that the subcontinent does not disappoint. There are many rebellious, transgressive, loving, dead ladies and gender diverse folks despite official projects to sanitize or erase queer history, which yes, has always existed, right? So who was Amrita and how did she exist? Amrita, or Amri, her pet name, 
was born right before the outbreak of World War I, uh, and she's named after Amritsar, India, the holy city of the Sikh religion. Her father, Sardar Umrao Singh Shargil, was a Sikh aristocrat and quite dashing. Wait for it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, he was a Sanskrit and Persian scholar and a brilliant photographer in his own right, while her mother, and this is her real name, Marie Antoinette, <laughs> Gotsman Erdobakte, um, equally fabulous, was a Jewish, French, Hungarian, German opera singer. So... Umrao and Marie Antoinette met when, when Marie Antoinette was serving as the traveling companion of Princess Bamba, who was another fascinating dead lady who was part of the Punjabi royalty in India. So Amrita grew up with very artistic, very liberal parents, surrounded by diplomats, poets, writers, intellectuals, and artists. So bourgeois from both sides of the family. And they had the means to cultivate her talent. Her privilege also allowed her a level of exceptionalism and protection from moral policing that you might expect of other young women her age. And um, anyway, not to undermine her at all, uh, it's just that Amrita really ran with it and led a wildly fulfilling artistic and personal life, as you'll see. So young Amrita spent her time between um, Europe and India. It wasn't until 1921, when she was eight years old, that the British Raj allowed her family back to India. This was because Amrita's father uh, had been identified as having ties to the Gadhar Party, a transnational armed revolutionary group calling for the abolishment of British imperialism. <laughs> so, yeah, one of my favorite groups in history. Um, as a consequence, the Shurgil's lands were seized and they were banned from re-entry to India until 1921 after a series of appeals. The family finally moved back to settle in Shimla, a posh hill station in northern India known as the British summer capital. So back in India, little Amrita, you can see her here drawing a portrait of someone, um, was a precocious and rebellious little punk. Uh, at nine, she declared herself an atheist and got kicked out of her convent school. <laughs> uh, yeah, like what nine-year-old does that? So um, Amrita started drawing on everything, walls and scraps of paper, even toilet paper. So eventually her parents got her an art teacher for formal lessons. In her own words, she said, I have drawn and painted from childhood. It would be of psychological interest to note that I detested the process of coloring in and drawing of picture books. I always drew and painted everything myself and resented correction and interference. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, she really needed to be free and not color inside the lines, and I think this is a sentiment she practiced throughout her life. In uh, 1923, her mother met an Italian sculptor living in Shimla, and um, probably because of, com of a combination of factors, including her mother's affair with him, one of a recorded few, because it seemed that Umrao and Marie Antoinette had a somewhat liberal and open marriage, but also recognizing Amrita's artistic talents, uh, Marie Antoinette took her daughter to Italy to enroll in the Santa Annunziata Art School. There, she was exposed from a really early age to Italian classical work, though Amrita being Amrita very quickly got expelled again, uh, this time for drawing nudes. <laughs> um, so they returned to Shimla the same year where Amrita continued her learning. 
A few years later, in 1929, now Amrita is 16 and a bit of a prodigy, her family moved to Paris, where Amrita began studying at Académie de la Chumière and later at L'École des Beaux-Arts. So can you imagine it, right? Teenage Amrita in Paris, she's really blossoming in this period. Amrita explored technique, but also started developing her unique style of painting, centering women's subjectivity, nudes, and self-portraiture. She was influenced by modernists and feminists like Suzanne Valadon, who also centered women's experiences. She won the first prize in Local de Beaux-Arts annual competition for portraiture, get this, three years in a row. Then in 1933, Amrita was uh, just 20 years old, and she had her breakthrough moment with the painting Young Girls. Uh, Young Girls won a gold medal at Le Grand Salon, which is sort of like the annual gallery at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, where it was named the Picture of the Year, making her both the youngest and the first Asian person to receive this recognition. So Young Girls, uh, which I have behind me, is a painting with her sister Indra, sitting quite self-possessedly with short-cropped hair, legs crossed, staring at Denise Proto, a French friend and art critic who, in comparison, looks a little disheveled and shy, with long blonde hair sitting topless, breasts exposed. Amrita went on to do about four portraits of Denise, among many other lovers and friends in Paris. These paintings often mirrored Amrita's own experience with art historian Nishad Avari calling her works more like psychological portraits. They're very intersectional and often expressing what her biographer Dalamia says was an interiority connected to her experience of gender, class, and race. So while in Europe, and probably all her life, people projected Orientalist tropes onto Amrita as this mystical, exotic Hindu princess. Denise's words, not mine. Uh, so remember, Amrita is an atheist with a Jewish Sikh background. So of course, she defies this categorization and asserts agency in almost everything she does. And you can really see this in her self-portraiture. Another notable piece during her Paris years was this painting entitled Self-Portrait as a Tahitian. And oh my God, this is, I think, really punk because it's a direct response to Paul Gauguin, the celebrated post-impressionist painter whose paintings of women in Tahiti and French Polynesia sit in most of the major art museums today. In Amrita's painting, Amrita is nude from the waist up, and in somewhat of her signature style, she's darkly staring off to the side, uh, resolutely, and to me it feels pretty defiantly. Her hair is long and pulled back into a ponytail. Nothing about the stance is overtly sexual. And there is actually a shadow of a man behind her, if you can see this painting, which can easily be an allegory for the artistic mainstream dominated by the white male European gaze. So Gauguin's paintings in Tahit of Tahitian women in comparison are highly sexualized, where dark-skinned women are fetishized, what he calls primitive. But here you see Amrita, her brown skin in a bare room, biracial, bisexual, staging herself as a Tahitian woman, and by doing so, kind of trashing uh, Gauguin's orientalist gaze. The racialized woman here is not an other, but is the subject with personhood. Just a little more about the life of teenage Amrita in Paris. <clears throat> She's fully immersed in the bohemian art scene, partying, hobnobbing, and dating. She was briefly engaged to Yusuf Ali Khan, who is in this picture behind me, a wealthy Indian royal, except she was also dating like a lot of other people at the same time. <laughs> um, and the whole thing ended really badly. Uh, he gave her a venereal disease. <laughs> she ended up having an abortion. 
which is okay, because we're all about bodily autonomy. Um, her mother had really wanted this engagement to work out, though, because it would have meant financial security for the family. Additionally, the abortion and the STI treatment was taken care of by her cousin, Victor Egan, a Hungarian doctor on her mom's side. So, all in the family. Uh, <laughs> Victor and Amrita grew up together and actually dated on and off, and he'll be more important later in the story. After five years in Paris, she expressed an intense longing, in her words, to return to India. Amrita had, had really strong and critical opinions about Indian artists at the time and felt that it was in India that she could really grow and take up space. Of returning uh, to India, she said, this is a quote, Europe belongs to Picasso, Matisse, Brock, and many others. India belongs only to me. <laughs> the confidence, right? Um, so she does. In 1934, now age 21, she returns to Shimla, and here her art dramatically shifts. India is undergoing major changes as well, as the anti-colonial movement is well underway. 1931 was when Gandhi did the Salt March, for example. Amrita un undergoes a real expansion period, both in style and subjects. She brings bold colors, more indigenous to Indian art, and, painting, and she starts painting scenes of everyday life. She's recognized in artistic circles, starts winning all these awards in Delhi and Bombay, and she starts finding new patrons. So um, she also has a series of romances and is still chilling with really prolific intellectuals and artists, so things are pretty good. In 1935, Amrita takes an extended tour of South India, compelled by a need to dig into her roots. She's influenced by older Mughal and Bihari art, which are these brightly colored miniature paintings with fine lines often depicting myth and nature. She visits the Ajanta and Elora Caves, some of the world's most significant examples of Buddhist art and sculpture carved directly into rock faces from the 2nd century BCE. Amrita wrote, A fresco from Ajanta is worth more than the whole Renaissance. During this time, she was influenced by Gandhian thinking and uh, was herself an anti-colonial sympathizer, of course. Her paintings focus more on portraying Indian peasants and the poor. At the same time, like, let's be real, she's still incredibly privileged, and that class outsiderness never really developed into a sophisticated solidarity with the peasants, per se, but even still, the working men and women were, were her primary subjects now. In 1938, when she was 25, uh, she pissed off her mother by marrying Victor Egan. Remember him? Um, her Hungarian first cousin and doctor who helped her perform two abortions now and cleared up that STI in Paris. There were no secrets between them, and Victor didn't expect her to transform into an ideal wife, but understood that she wanted to center her life around art. Unlike other suitors, though, he was broke and struggled to set up a practice in India for his medical uh, practice. So when they were in India together, they were forced to move to a rural sugar plantation owned by Amrita's uncle, where he served as the factory doctor. Bored and surrounded by rural life, Amrita painted some of her most well-recognized works during this time. It was also during this time in the 1940s that Nehru, the leader of the independence movement and the future prime minister of India, began a flirtation with Amrita. <laughs> yeah, this is wild. Um, 
based on existing letters, they seemed really taken with each other. It's incredibly poetic, the ones that survive, but it's okay because we don't have to know the extent of their business, um, nor will we ever know because Marie Antoinette burned those letters specifically. <laughs> I know. But... Uh, eventually, the rural life and isolation on the plantation made our girl really depressed, uh, to the point where she stopped painting for a while. Victor and Amrita decided to move to Lahore, one of pre-partition India's intellectual centers at the time. There, she quickly became friends with all the influential folks in town and began painting again. In Lahore, she started preparing for a major solo art show, However, six months into life in the city, she suddenly fell ill, and in 1941, in the tender age of 28, Amrita Shergill died. I know, surprise! Um, she was very young, and furthermore, it was speculated that she died after Victor administered a third abortion that caused complications and death. So when you step back and actually see what this woman did... You see how she lived her life. Um, what you're really looking at is a portrait of a liberated queer woman of color who exercised a freedom and fearlessness seldom seen, I think, then and even now. In 1976, the Indian government made her a national treasure, which means that it's illegal to take her artwork out of India without permission. Today, the National Museum of Modern Art in Delhi has over 100 of her pieces, and while her art is something that's embraced, her life, which included multiple abortions, promiscuity, bisexuality, and most likely polyamory, which are all feminist as fuck, um, these are not part of the official narratives or treasured. I wanted to present them, Rita Shergill, precisely because constructing these mythical heroes while flattening and erasing parts of their fundamental identity because of moral panic is not true, right? Homosexuality was only decriminalized in India in 2018, and right now, as we're doing this lecture, in 2023, the Indian Supreme Court is reviewing the legalization of same-sex marriage. Abortion stigma and affirmative care, especially for unmarried, queer, or young women, is rampant still. So I think um, we all deserve the social and political conditions to live as freely and on our own terms as Amrita did, and that's why I see her relatively short life not as a tragedy, but as a glorious example of feminist autonomy. I'll end with a very simple quote by an otherwise complex woman on autonomy. This was originally addressed to Victor in the context of their marriage. Amrita says, You should always do what you want to do. I hope I will always have the power to do what I want to do because it suits my own wishes. Thank you very much. Nafisa Ferdos on Amrita Shergill. Nafisa is also a wonderful artist, and you can see some of her work on her website, nafisaferdos.com, and on Instagram at underscore underscore petney. Well, we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> She's done fantastic illustrations of dead ladies, including Ursula K. Le Guin, Wangari Matai, and of course, Amrita Shergill. We'll put some of those up along with images of Amrita herself and her art at our website, deadladyshow.com slash podcast and on social media at deadladiesshow. Psst, 
Want to see a live Dead Lady show? <laughs> well, if you're in Berlin, come join us in October at Podfest Berlin, where we will be telling some new stories of amazing women from history for a live recording there. The festival runs from the 13th through the 15th, and there will be all kinds of live tapings, workshops, and other opportunities for podcast makers and podcast fans of all interests and languages to meet up. We'll be doing our thing Saturday, October 14th at 8.15 p.m. To purchase tickets, follow the links provided in the episode notes or just pop over to podfestberlin.com. Yes, we're looking forward to seeing some of you live, where I will speak German, and the rest of you virtually, whether it's on social media or via email. Find us at Dead Lady Show for all updates and information or email us to info at deadladyshow.com. We'll be back again next month with another episode on another fabulous dead lady. We will. And let me say vielen Dank to everyone at Dead Ladies NYC, including the lively audience at the Red Room, which is overseen by the one and only Laurie Schwartz. And thanks also to Christopher Neal, who records the show in New York. You can see what they're up to over on Instagram at Dead Ladies NYC. Their next show in New York is Wednesday, September 27th. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Our theme tune is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. Bye for now. Bye-bye.